0: Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network.
1: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a
0: crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or
1: not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook.
0: And so my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning into this episode of What the Politics. So today, our topic has to do with the ethical dilemmas, decisions around COVID, the pandemic, the vaccine, the government's responsibility in distributing that vaccine, just a few things that have been kind of stirring around in the back of my mind, and I'm sure are are kind of at the forefront of what um, people who are studying biology, ethics, medical ethics, and all the the different facets of public policy are trying to to figure out right now. So our guest today is Hugh Lee, and he is from ECU. And Hugh, can you please introduce yourself to the audience?
0: My name is Hugh Lee. Uh, I'm a teaching professor in the Department of Bioethics and Interdisciplinary Studies at Brody School of Medicine of East Carolina University, uh, where I've been a teaching professor since uh, 2015. Um, In that role, I teach medical students, physician assistant students, and others about bioethical issues which face them as practitioners, um, as well as introducing them to ethical issues facing our our entire health system. Um, My background is that I was a a law professor for almost 20 years at the University of Alabama School of Law, uh, where I taught primarily in the clinical program. And my background is in serving elderly clients, and so... um, there's a lot of crossover between uh, my law teaching career and, and my current career uh, because I dealt with a lot of ethical issues in aging um, and advanced medical planning, um, advanced healthcare planning, um, and a lot of those issues transition over into the field of bioethics. Um, I also at East Carolina University teach um, constitutional law and civil liberties in the Department of Political Science, so. Our discussion today about uh, uh, vaccines and about the COVID pandemic kind of crosses over my two areas of academic interest, uh, because to some degree, we're talking about um, both the public health response to pandemic uh, and also the civil rights and civil liberties of individuals um, and the degree to which uh, government may ask them or force them to do uh, things that they may not want to do. Um, in terms of taking a vaccine or wearing a mask or whatever it may be that government has decided is a necessary response uh, to a public health crisis.
2: Definitely. We're we're very excited to have you here because obviously, you know, you are an expert in this this field of study that we're um, hoping to talk about today. So we're very excited to have you here and um, very interesting to know your background. Um, Being a lawyer and all that is very interesting. Um, So for somebody who you know, doesn't know anything about ethical issues or medical ethical issues. Can you give them an example, a basic example of what a medical ethical issue is and why it's an ethical sure. issue?
0: Um, bioethics as a field studies the ethical and moral issues surrounding medicine, health care, and health policy. Some of the larger issues addressed by bioethics include, for instance, whether there is a universal right to health care. Um, how healthcare should be rationed, for instance, when we have a scarce resource. What is the ethical nature of society's obligations with regard to health? Health. Um, bioethics is also concerned with very specific questions, such as should an individual be allowed to end their own lives through a physician-assisted suicide? Or what, what rules should govern biological research? And so medical ethics is, is concerned with how we make these decisions about about right and wrong um, with regard to medicine and with regard to health.
1: Mm-hmm. And from your standpoint, just within the past nine months, what is your overall take of how the government has been um, handling the pandemic, their response?
0: Yeah, well, this is this would definitely be uh, my opinion. So I want to be clear that this is this is my opinion and not uh, the opinion of Brody School Medicine. Um, mm-hmm. But in, in my opinion, there have been parts of the government's response that have been effective and parts that have been ineffective. Um, to the degree that we have financed and fast tracked biomedical bio, uh, research into a COVID vaccine, um, I think the response has been good. I, I think that if you could have said that we would face a pandemic and develop a vaccine in the period of time that has been developed, a, a vaccine. Several different vaccines that have proven to be very effective, um, you know, I would have said that was a tremendous achievement. Um, I think where um, the government response, in my opinion, um, has been less effective is in the area of, of messaging and ensuring that the kinds of preventive measures you know, that would prevent um, the, the um, spread of the disease and would ensure that our transmission rate is low. Um, have been less effective.
2: So when it comes to the government's responsibility for health care, in your opinion or as an as an expert's opinion, how much responsibility do you think the government should take on when it comes to health care? Or should it be, you know, a totally separate entity from the government?
0: Well, now you're really asking me to put on my other hat, (laughs)
2: Um,
0: because because as as someone who teaches in the area of political science and teaches in the area of civil rights and constitutional law, these areas of legal study really focus on what is the nature and role of government. Mm -hmm. What is our expectation of our government with regard to the services they provide to us, the laws they pass, the practices and programs that they put into into place? What, what do we expect from our government? And I think that one of the most basic things we expect from government is that government is going to protect our safety. Um, and that whether that is, uh, firefighters or police officers or military, mm-hmm. um, protection or whether it is protecting mm-hmm. public health. Um, and we have a fairly long history of protecting public health, um, in the United States and a fairly strong expectation um, that government is going to protect us um, from um, uh, from threats to our health, whether it's by virtue of environmental protection laws, you know, protecting clean water, protecting clean air, whether it's through workplace safety laws that protect us from being put in positions where we will really be injured on the job, you know, or whether it is public health laws to try to prevent you know the transmission of disease. I think we have an expectation. Um, that at the very least, the government in the area of healthcare is going to act in a way that protects us. Um, and so I think that um, particularly with something like a pandemic, it may be only government that is in a position to mobilize a broad enough, large enough response to effectively... Um, uh, respond to this kind of public health crisis.
1: Mm-hmm. Would you say that the the responsibility that the government takes on for health care is, I, what I'm hearing is it's different than when it's outside of a pandemic. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, it, it's It's different in the sense of the scale of the problem, and it's different in the sense of the urgency of the problem. Um, but we have to recognize that public health has been concerned with, um, you know, um, with with um, transmissible diseases for a long time um, and that we, I mean, with regard to communicable diseases, we have all kinds of laws on the books virtually in every state in the union um, that require the reporting of communicable diseases, the tracking of communicable diseases, um, and that we take steps, um, you know, to address those diseases and contain them in a way that protects public health. Um, so the difference between, in my opinion, the government response during pandemic times is simply the scale and scope of the response, the amount of money you know that has to be committed to the response, and also um, the additional laws passed specific to the response, things like executive orders, um, mandating mask wearing, or state laws like we have in North Carolina that grant liability immunity. Um, to healthcare providers and healthcare facilities, um, you know, during the time of this public health emergency. And so um, I I think the primary difference is the scope and extent of government action to respond.
2: Sure. And so going back when, uh, you know, you were talking about uh, the government's responsibility for healthcare and the fact that, you know, it's providing healthcare, having clean water, having, um, you know, these policies for an environmental in place, would, you know, obviously the Flint, Michigan water situation, would that obviously be like a medical ethical issue that, you know, the government failed in in helping or assisting these people in this community with?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the ethical issue in that in that context is, is does government have a responsibility um, to the people to ensure clean water? And did they fail in their ethical obligation to provide that? I mean what what is government's responsibility with regard to health? What are the contours of it? Um, what are What should our reasonable expectations be um, and And how do we address those things? And I think that one of the things that I teach in my second year of bioethics class in the medical school, is we go beyond that the ethical obligations that a physician has to their patients such as confidentiality or the duty to respect the patient's choice or things like that. We go beyond that to what are our ethical obligations as a society with regard to health because we recognize that health, health uh, results uh, as much from environment as much from things like social determinants of health and the ability to have access to healthy food and things like that, as it does, as it results from health care being provided by a doctor or hospital or whatever.
2: So you're you're kind of saying that ethical issues, you know, although, you know, the government should be responsible for a large section of this, you know, it's part of their responsibility to the American people. But would you also say then, you know, ethical issues are also in largely a part of the community's responsibility to, you know, make sure we're wearing our masks, make sure we're washing our hands, social distancing. Um, So, you know, do you think it's kind of a 50-50 or 60-40 in the fact that it's It's just as much responsibility for the people in the community to take on these ethical issues as well.
0: yeah well, you know we're 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 all ethical actors. Um, mm. in in our everyday lives, we make ethical choices. Uh, we make an ethical choice not to lie, or we make an ethical choice not to steal, or we make an ethical choice, you know to um, you know to be honest in our dealings with other people. Um, we make ethical choices every day, and the question is, um, to what degree do you feel um, an ethical obligation to take protective steps um, you know to protect yourself or others, you know from a disease like Covid? And I think that one of the challenges um, that that society faces in the time of pandemic is um, both convincing um, society of the need for protective measures and the efficacy of protective measures. And also convincing them of, of uh, provide or encouraging them to feel a sense of obligation with regard to carrying out these kinds of protective measures. Um, and I, I think that um, that has been one of the challenges of, of this pandemic has been to communicate well enough the effectiveness of the preventive measures um, that society has asked people to take.
2: Sure. And so, you know, talking about the vaccines in this pandemic. People obviously, when they start to roll out, you know, um, Pfizer obviously has sent their um, vaccine offer approval for the FDA. I believe that was last Friday, um, and so we're kind of just waiting on those FDA approvals at this point for them to start rolling them out in a, in an emergency um, manner. So when people have the choice to take them to not to take these vaccines. What are the consequences of those choices to take it or to not take it?
0: Right. Well, I think I think, first of all, we have to recognize that um, as as it stands, for instance, in the case in the state of North Carolina, there's no law that I know of that mandates that you take uh, the vaccine. Um, There are states that do grant to their public health officer the right during times of declared public health emergencies to require vaccination or to mandate isolation or quarantine. Um, We don't have, as far as I know, a law like that on the books in the state of North Carolina. But the state of Florida, for instance, has a very broad statute that allows the public health officer to mandate examination, testing, vaccination, and treatment during times of public health emergency. And if the individual poses a danger to public health, may subject them to isolation or quarantine. And so and and that is, you know, a law that I think some people would find surprising. Um and some people would would object to the breadth of that law and the requirement of a vaccination or quarantine. As far as I know, we don't have a law like that on the books in North Carolina. Um but with, but, but that is not to say that we don't have a history of requiring vaccination. It's just that the consequences of failing um, to uh, vaccinate have not been so severe. So, for instance, in North Carolina, we have a mandatory vaccination statute that requires vaccination to attend school or to attend college. And if you're not able to provide proof of vaccination or show that you are exempt medically from vaccination or make a sufficient proof of religious exemption, you can't attend school and you can't attend college. And so we do in other areas require vaccination and have consequences, for the failure to vaccinate. Um, and I will tell you that if North Carolina were to pass a law that mandated vaccination, um, you know, there is every possibility that the U.S. Supreme Court would say that that is a constitutional law. Um, there, During the time of smallpox, um, the court considered this issue in the case of Jacobson versus uh, Massachusetts. Um, and the court said, yes, in that case, you do have freedom under our constitution you have liberty interests under the 14th amendment but by being by virtue of being a member of society and the larger societal needs for public health and to prevent the spread of smallpox um the court says we we believe massachusetts was, was within its authority to mandate vaccination so you know i think that that even though we don't have such a law in the books we could um now that doesn't mean that that such a law would be able to avoid all the political consequences and enforcement problems that might come with that. Um, are you prepared to enforce such a law if people object?
1: I'm I'm trying to figure out a way to to formulate this question. So I, I ask for your patience when it when it comes to to answering. But as a as a expert in in. Bioethics and and what's going on um, in the medical field and some of the issues going on. When would you start kind of raising your eyebrows or kind of start kind of doing a, a double check and thinking, hmm, like this is really pushing the government's um, authority on on certain medical issues. Does that make sense? Like, when would you start feeling yeah. okay? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think I I think uh you know in my opinion when we start to be concerned um uh, about the ethical underpinning of our laws is when we start mandating medical treatment over objection. There aren't a whole lot of areas in which um we recognize um the ethicality of a government essentially holding someone down and treating them. Right. Um we, we we, in this country um, have strong ideals of self-determination, strong ideals of personal autonomy, um, strong ideals about our sense of personal freedom, um, and it is a very strong ethical principle um, that the autonomy of an individual should be respected. Does that mean that the individual, if we had a proper law in the books that had been upheld, that an individual could simply... Refuse a vaccination, continue blithely, you know, without consequence, um, to go through society and potentially infect other people. Maybe not. Um, but the question is then what is an appropriate consequence then for failure to adhere to a law like that? Um, and Florida has made the decision that an appropriate consequence is required quarantine and isolation. Um, and so I think there are some who would look at that and say that's too severe that um, that is a draconian kind of state response. Um, so there's not a right answer to that mm-hmm. question. Um, but I do think that when we get to the point of forced medical treatment, um, we should really stop and take a step and say, is there not a least less intrusive, less invasive um, way of achieving our our public health
2: goals. So when the COVID vaccine, you know, starts to roll out, if it ends up rolling out, you know, by December, that's what they're projecting. Um, what are the policies that are being fast-tracked or overlooked to get this distrib- distributed? You know, I know it's it's being sent out for emergency use. Is there hope, you know, for people who are first responders, who are um, elderly, who are more susceptible to the virus? Um, but are they, you know, missing any policies? Are they overlooking anything to get this distributed faster? You know, is, is it going to be safe? Is it going to be as regulated as it should be?
0: Um, and I will, I will start by saying this is not an area of expertise for me because the rules that govern um, biomedical testing and clinical trials are very specific, um, and we actually have. Um, Folks on our faculty that teach research ethics, um, and I do not. Um, and so I'll, I'll start with a caveat that this is not an area of expertise. But I will say, in talking with them, um, that it appears to me um, that the fast track process primarily shortens the time to market on the back end of clinical trials. In other words, after clinical trials are completed, um, the period of time post trial that the patients are studied. Um, you know, that normally there would be a longer post-trial period where they're studied. But this emergency use authorization request has truncated that process a little bit. But I will say that, that up until that point, um, regular clinical trials protocols have been followed. And that's my understanding um, from others that I've talked to. Um, I will say that it is imperative um, for purposes of having a successful vaccine distribution and treatment regimen um, that we are able... To be clear and persuasive and convincing um, about the safety of the vaccines that have been developed, otherwise there will be great hesitance to accept the vaccine and to take the vaccine, and that would totally defeat, you know, all of the work to fast track the vaccine and to get us to the point of having a viable response um, to the pandemic. And we have to recognize, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna be a little bit long winded about this, but. We, we have to recognize that there are segments of society that have legitimate reasons, um, to be hesitant about being just simply offered a vaccine. I mean, we, we have unfortunately a history in our country, um, particularly in the biomedical, bioethical history of our country of clinical trials being conducted, you know, that were discriminated against African Americans that created distrust in the American healthcare system. Um, and that make it reasonable for people to say, well, you're telling me this is safe. Why should I believe you? And so it's going to be critically important for us um, to convince people of the safety and efficacy um, and the need um, for, for everyone to be vaccinated.
1: Mm-hmm. And going on to, to access to the, to the vaccine, that was a great point that, that you brought up. I, I do want to note that. But um, moving on to the having equal access to the vaccine, when it is distributed Is it is it fair to say that the government will do or try to attempt to roll out this vaccine so that it's available to everyone without having I'm not I'm not sure exactly like the when it comes to like insurance covering the cost or the person covering the cost? I mean, where where does that responsibility lie on?
0: Well, um, you, you know, I, I think that the primary problem that we have is that it will take a while for these vaccines to ramp up in terms of production. Mm-hmm. And so these initial stages of, de- of vaccine distribution have to be prioritized. And this is a classic area of bioethical study, the idea of if, if healthcare is to be rationed, how do you ration it? Um, and it's important at the, at the beginning of this process that we have firm ethical justifications for the people that we choose um, to distribute the vaccine to. And so um, there's actually a meeting today at the CDC of ACIP, which is the the National Committee on on Vaccine Protocols or Immunization Protocols, um, in which they're going to decide exactly what the prioritization should be for the distribution of vaccine as it is rolled out. And, um, initial, um, work on this, both by CDC, by Johns Hopkins, by, um, the, uh, Academy of Sciences, um, uh, National Academies of Practice, excuse me, um, indicate that, that the first group, um, would be, um, medical workers and first responders. The idea being that if you're trying to do, for instance, in, in ethics, we might say, uh that utilitarianism is a principle that we think is a sound ethical principle which means doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people might be our motivating ethical principle. Well if we were going to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people this would require that we preserve our medical workforce that we pre- we preserve our first responders health so that they are able to effectively respond you know to all the illness that occurs until such time as everyone can be vaccinated. And so you could argue that it makes sense for them to be in the first group. Um, The the, the second group, what has been identified as 1D, would be people with underlying health conditions, comorbidities um, that would make them at greater risk of death or serious illness from COVID-19, people with pre-existing conditions like asthma, for instance, um, who are particularly susceptible to the way the disease works would be in that group as well. Um, Early drafts also have in this group older adults who are in congregate settings. Um, The idea being that they are in close proximity, that they have shared health uh, workers who serve them and therefore the chance and risk of transmission is much, much higher. And because they um, are in a group that is particularly susceptible to the disease due to to age and comorbidities, then they also should be a high-priority group. And the part of the discussion today is whether that group even moves up higher uh, because of the tremendous risk to them. And so when we, when we talk to the public about the method of distributing the vaccine, it's important that we explain the underlying rationale. Why aren't you getting it? And why is this other person getting it? Because they need to believe that the system is just and that they will receive the, the vaccine when it is appropriate and correct for them to receive it, and that there are good ethical reasons why people receiving it ahead of them have gotten the vaccine.
2: Sure. So our last question for you, uh, we don't want to take up too much of your time, is as an expert, how hopeful are you that once this vaccine is distributed, that it's going to meet all these ethical, you know, policies and standards?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And this is something that my colleague Helen Ransom and I are really, um, have really been focused on and, and, and really concerned about. Um, and we, we're writing on this right now. And that is the need for, and I think there's a sense in which once you have developed a set of ethical principles that guide the way in which the vaccine is distributed to whom and at what point, there's a, there's a, a sense in which we're done, right? There's a sense in which you can feel like, we did it, we've, we've got a system in place, and it's fair, and it's equitable, and it's transparent, and people can understand the reason why, and so people will participate. But, but we think the ethical obligation goes far beyond that, that for people to be committed to receiving the vaccine, for people to believe that the vaccine is efficacious and effective and a good decision for them to take it and that they're being treated fairly and justly by society in the distribution of the vaccine. We have to continue to be transparent throughout the whole process. We have to be able to educate and explain the public about the safety of the vaccine, about the order in which it's distributed, uh, and they need to be able to see that in fact the gov- government is following through in its distribution in accordance with the promises that it made um, about the proper priority of people to receive it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for your time, and I'm sure that this th- the period that we're living in will be in classes that you're teaching in years to come. So I really appreciate you you and your yeah. expertise in this. And in, in this fast, I'm I'm fascinated by by this topic and. and- the ethical implications of COVID vaccine and what the pandemic has done and the government's responsibility. So, thank you so much for your time.
0: Uh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
1: All right, everyone.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of What the Politics. We release a new episode every Tuesday. You can listen in on Spotify, Apple Music, here at WNCT.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll ch- catch you next time.